electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Sometimes you just have to go against the grain. When panic reigns... You have to be bold enough to say that the sellers sell, sell, sell. have it wrong. And it's time to start buying. Buy, buy, buy. When everyone is euphoric, you have to be willing to sell what others are going gaga over. That's how I feel on a day like today where the market tried and failed to break out despite the change in leadership. Dow ultimately rising 45 points, but the SME backsliding 0.10% and the NASDAQ dipping 0.27%. And I expect more selling in that index tomorrow after we digest Netflix's disappointing earnings this very evening. Classic example on Friday, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, and J.P. Morgan reported better-than-expected earnings. And their stocks all laid eggs. It didn't matter that Citigroup committed to buying more than 10% of its stock back, at least if it stays at these levels. It didn't matter that J.P. Morgan gave you a fabulous return on equity and much better than expected trading. It didn't matter that Wells Fargo had very little fallout from its previous transgressions. In fact, the only reason why Wells Fargo didn't even give you a bigger number was a decision, a prudent decision, to limit lending in markets that don't offer a good enough reward to compensate for the risk. I was flabbergasted when I was on Squawk on the Street Friday morning. Simply shocked that the sellers could be so obtuse. And I jumped up and down to try to get people to buy these stocks. Buy, 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 I figured when the execs finished their conference calls, the sellers would come to their senses and the buyers would step up. Yet there was a total buyer strike and a usually important group for the stock market was laid to waste. It made no sense whatsoever. But then today things changed. Yes. Bank of America reported, delivering good news on pretty much every single line item. The company was incredibly efficient. The government blessed a plan where it could return $26 billion to shareholders over the next year via buybacks and dividends, which is $9 billion more than they were allowed to do last year. Net income for the quarter was a staggering $6.8 billion after tax. Get this, up 33% year over year. At the same time, Bank of America is taking advantage of the yield curve to grow its net interest margin responsibly. And its deft embrace of technology has created tremendous returns versus traditional brick-and-mortar banking. 
The result? The stock took off from the get-go, the exact opposite of what happened to the banks that reported on Friday. More importantly, Bank of America took every major bank stock with it, including the big three that reported Friday, with Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, and Wells Fargo just erupting to the upside. And why not? These are the cheapest stocks in the market other than the autos. And unlike the autos, the banks are showing excellent year-over-year growth, as you will hear later in the show when we interview Brian Moynihan, the Bank of America chairman and CEO, who delivered such an incredible quarter. I think you have to step back sometimes and say to yourself, wait a second, how weak were those numbers really? I sat down and looked at everyone on this weekend. I did it over and over again, trying to find out what people were thinking. I went over the lines and found so few weak ones. Let's say the ratio was probably 10 good ones to one. Not kidding. 10 to one that you simply had to go against the grain on these stocks because the market, I thought, was dead wrong. And it was. Where else could the market be wrong? Today, President Trump met with President Putin in Helsinki. And we heard some rumblings that made it sound like Putin would throw him a bone by pumping more oil. That coupled with whispers that the Saudis will be pumping more and that the U.S. might drain some of the strategic petroleum reserve all combined to knock down the price of crude by almost three bucks a barrel. House of pleasure. Oops, sorry. The house of pain. Here's the problem. Just like the sellers were mistakenly slamming the bank stocks on Friday, the buyers had aggressively bid up the oil stocks not that long ago. Now, oil's been clobbered, and the oil stocks are under huge pressure. So Chevron, with a stock that had just run from 123 to 127, has now gone down below 123. Or how about the stock of Diamondback Energy, the wrong fang, so to speak? It climbed from 129 to 138. Now it's back below the 130 level. So were the buyers wrong? No, 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 no. I think they were just over-enthusiastic. No sarcasm. That's what they were. Because now the crude has come down to 68, I think, once again, you have to take the other side of the trade. you got to buy the oils. Why? Simple. Let's say we're going to unleash some of the oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Let's say Russia does put more crude into the market to give Trump a win. Hey, it's the least Putin could do. Let's say the Saudis are making deals to offload more oil into the market. These are not what matters long term. It's not about individual countries boosting the production. Long-term, the oil market's all about exploration. We need these countries to start spending more money on discovering new oil. That's what's not happening. We heard from Core Lab last week, and we've listened to Schlumberger talk endlessly about how drilling budgets really haven't increased much at all. Some countries like Venezuela and Mexico continue to be in bleed-down mode. They're just depleting and depleting. If these producers don't replenish their oil coffers sooner or later, the price of crude is going to score, it's really go sky high. So those few oil companies in countries that are actually drilling will be rewarded with much higher prices. Let me put it another way. Betting against oil after a quick decline has proved to be a bad bet of late. We've experienced a 1.5% increase in demand this year, which may not sound like that much, but for the last two decades, it's never gone up more than 1%. Then this very evening, we got an event that is causing Torrents of sales in the tech world this time. Netflix reported what it called a wow, and this took my breath away. First line, a strong but not stellar second quarter with membership growth of 5.2 million. That's a million shy of what they forecasted. Ouch! 
It didn't matter the company had fantastic margin expansion. It, it, it also, I mean, streaming revenues rose 43% year over year, but who cares? It was a bad miss. And the stock took a big dive in after hours trading. Something that seems reasonable, I guess, given that it was up 108% for the year going into the, uh, going into the close year. I mean, you know, honestly, that, well, I, I could say the stock could trade still lower tomorrow. But you know what doesn't make sense to me? What could be an opportunity? was that all of FANG, Facebook, Amazon, and Alphabet, formerly Google, all got slammed as if somehow Netflix was a proxy for all those companies. Amazon stock gave up nine-point gain from Amazon Prime Day during the session. Then it dropped another big chunk below that, although obviously that was exacerbated by the now uh, crash heard around the world. That's the crash in the Amazon site, which is a distinctly suboptimal development. Further, any company with a subscription business, a company like Spotify, for example, was crushed in after-hours trading. And, of course, that was in sympathy with the Netflix devil. To me, it feels a lot like guilt by association. At least the banks and the oils deserve to trade together, but these companies like Facebook and Twitter, which are going down, I mean, come on. The only thing they have in common with the stock of Netflix is they were up a lot. Not a lot of commonality there. Now, I'm not saying, uh, you know, I, that every bit of weakness is a buying opportunity. Last week, the president castigated the drug companies for rampant price gouging, and the stocks went up in the face of the news. The problem? Only Pfizer, which the president singled out by name, has agreed yet to roll back prices. What happens when the president returns home? I think he hammers them again. I think he tweets that, come on, Pfizer's the only good one. Yeah, they'll probably get hit again. Even as I I don't think there's much the government can do to lower drug prices. Here's the bottom line. In this crazy market, you need to be be willing to go against the grain because it's the only way to be rational. Just try not to overreact so that you can be opportunistic. Don't be blind. Buying good merchandise into weakness caused by collateral damage uh, and maybe ringing the register into excessive strength like you got going into the less than stellar Netflix quarter. Maybe that makes sense. Maybe that's what you do tomorrow. Stephen in Illinois. Stephen. Hello, Mr. Kramer. Hallelujah and booyah. Oh, thank you. What's going on? <laughs> uh, Jim, I am a very long listener and first-time caller. I've always okay. been afraid to invest, but you actually took away that fear from me. So thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Um, you're welcome. I'm actually calling about TRN, Trinity Industries. Um, you've, you've said, I'm looking at this company, that's, and I want to know if you think it's a good buy. And based upon their you know, leading positions and their uh, strong free cash flows and their compelling opportunities, I'd like to know if they're an indicator, if you feel if they're an indicator, because they're in the railroad industries, um, well, if, if their performance is an indication of how the economy is doing. Well, look, I've got to tell you, uh, if I want that, I'm actually going to just go buy Union Pacific, which is in there buying back a ton of stock. And I think it's a much better buy than Trinity. I look at rail car loadings. They were up 4% last week. That's okay, not great, but certainly better than expected. All right, this market is about being willing to go against the grain. It's about being opportunistic. That'll help you remain rational. Oh, man, money tonight from salt and pepper to more exotic flavors. You can luckily find consumer giant McCormick in your kitchen cabinets. But is it stock, the secret ingredient for your portfolio? Then, banks are having their first up day in five. Are the financials finally getting their due, as I said at the top? I'm going to sit down with the CEO of Bank of America after earnings to see if the move can continue to go higher. And Enbridge is up, wow, over 20% from its April lows. With oil prices falling today, what's ahead for the company? I've got the CEO, so stick with 
Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Resourceful small business owners know how to get value from the purchases they already make for their businesses each month. The Enhanced American Express Business Gold Card is designed to take your business further. It's packed with benefits and features like four times membership rewards points that automatically adapt to your top two eligible spending categories every month on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. So you earn more where your business spends the most. Plus up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible business purchases at select shipping, food delivery, and retail subscription merchants. And with flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business and access to 24-7 support from a business card specialist, you can continue to run your business with confidence. The Amex Business Gold Card, now smarter and more flexible. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Enrollment required. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. now and then you'll get a quarter that's so good it sends a seemingly sleepy stock into the stratosphere. Just look at McCormick. Oh, you know McCormick, MKC, the number one maker of spices and seasonings in the world. After spending more than a year pretty much marking time, this Kramer fave reported a blowout number at the end of June, and its stock pole vaulted higher, serving from $105 to $114 in a single session. This is a spice company, for heaven's sake. And then climbing all the way up to $118 and change of us today. That's right. This thing. So what's going on here? Why did McCormick's latest quarter catch Wall Street by surprise? Okay, some of this is simply because the consumer packaged goods stocks haven't exactly been popular in the Wall Street fashion show of late. They're hated. The company kept reporting good quarter after good quarter after good quarter, but never seemed to matter. Never seemed to get any credit because people assumed this was merely the best house in a bad neighborhood. Everybody was frightened about rising commodity costs, rising transportation costs, the ever-escalating trade war that could make it harder for any of these companies to do business in important overseas markets. And while that general diagnosis is indeed accurate, it didn't really fit the specific case of McCormick. This company kept putting up strong numbers, yet because investors tend to paint with too broad a brush, that, brush, that is so typical of what happens. It was ignored. Basically, Wall Street treated this stock like it was guilt by association. Beyond that, though, there was also one big perceived negative to the specific that is McCormick. I say perceived negative because in reality, there was nothing wrong. But it took the analysts and investors a lot of time to figure that out. 
I'm talking about McCormick's $4.2 billion acquisition of the record Ben Keyser's food division announced roughly a year ago. They picked up a, a bunch of brands here, including French's mustard, Frank's red hot sauce, and Catalan's barbecue sauce. Basically, a bunch of condiments to go with their core spices and seasonings business. French's and Frank's red hot are both number one in their categories, and Frank's is growing like a weed. When I heard the news, I, too, was initially confused. But then I came around because it gives McCormick a lot more shelf space in the spices, seasonings, and condiments aisle. This is the kind of thing that gives packaged food companies more bargaining power with the supermarkets. And in this business, bargaining power is incredibly important. But I think I was pretty lonely in liking this deal. At the time, McCormick stock got slammed on the news as investors worried that the company was paying too much for RB Foods. Lawrence Curzius, the CEO, actually had to do a round of media appearances to reassure investors that the deal was a good one. In fact, he came on this show a little less than a year ago to lay it all out. I want you to listen to some of this stuff. Here's what he told us about the price. I wish I could have bought my house for a discount, but if I had tried to, somebody else would be living in it. And it's the same with this. You know, it's a quality asset. It's, these are leading brands. They've got strong growth characteristics. They're on trend, um, and they're tremendously profitable. Um, you know, a lot of other companies saw value in this. Curtis went on to praise the strength of Frank's Red Hot. Millennials seem to really love spicy flavors. By the way, it doesn't add a lot of weight, so they love that too. By doubling down on flavor, he explained that McCormick is doubling down on growth. I like the story, and I pounded the table in the stock, which has now given us a 25% gain since that interview. And look, there was a lot to like beyond just new exposure to the fastest-growing hot sauce category. The company could use its global scale to significantly expand the worldwide presence of these new brands. Management told us to expect about $50 million in revenue synergies. They also told a very good margin expansion story. Put all together, I think it was a major positive one. Rank record Ben Keyser deal when it closed last August. Yet for months and months, the stock couldn't get much lift. It was stuck bouncing between the 90s and the low 100s for the reasons I mentioned before. Nobody was that excited about any kind of consumer packaged goods stock in an environment where the economy is roaring and raw costs were rising. But Corman reported a nice beat and raised quarter with accelerating growth in September. The stock rallied a bit and then gave back its gains. McCormick delivered another beat in January, 21% revenue growth. Management saying that the double-digit growth would continue through 2018 thanks to Reckitt Benkeiser's deal. We're talking about the company's best revenue numbers in over 20 years. And that sales growth was already starting to translate into earnings growth in the first full quarter after they finished the acquisition. Once again, the stock rallied nicely up about 5%, and it kept climbing for the next few days. But also, once again, it quickly lost its momentum as the whole market fell off a cliff in February. Fast forward to late March, McCormick gave us third beat in a row. What do you have to do around here with some monster 31% earnings growth? Then raised its full-year guidance for the top and the bottom line. Told a terrific tale of successful execution across the board strength in its business. That amazing earnings growth tells you exactly how well the company was cutting costs out of the RB Foods acquisition. What happens? Stock opens substantially higher and then again gives up nearly all of its gains the same day. In fact, by the time McCormick reported its next quarter on June 27th, stock was actually down a buck from where it was trading before we got those amazing numbers in March. The darn thing just couldn't get any traction, even though, well, I got to tell you, these were quite exciting. 
Why was Wall Street being so obtuse? In addition to all the hand-wringing hand, uh, about the consumer package goods space, McCormick also got a brutal downgrade, holy cow, from Deutsche Bank back in January. It really weighed on the stock. The analyst spun a story about deceleration in the company's core U.S. spices and seasonings division and a similar slowdown at the, at the wreck at Ben Keyser brands they just acquired. Well, that was scary. They said the legacy McCormick business was poised to lose major market share to private label competitors, and there would be little to no organic growth to be found. Just a Another food stock. Basically, they painted a very grim picture. And while quarter to quarter, McCormick proves this picture dead wrong, the negative thesis simply refused to die. Which brings us to the game changer at the end of June, when the company finally laid this nonsense to rest. McCormick posted a $0.09 earnings beat off of higher-than-expected revenues, up 19% year-over-year. All those businesses that Deutsche Bank said were decelerating, no, 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 no. They're doing great. In fact, Curtis believes they can turn Frank's Red Hot into the number one hot sauce on earth. I believe him. This was a high-quality beat, and everybody knew it. Couldn't fight this one anymore. Finally, the stock got some real lift, surging 8.4% that day, and then continued to rally to an all-time high of $120 last week. Now, from my perspective, this was all a little bizarre. For the first time this year, McCormick didn't actually raise his guides, and for the first time, investors bought the stock hand over fist. I think a lot of this strength was short covering, but the reason the shorts were forced to cover is that the bear thesis was eviscerated. It took a while, but people finally realized that McCormick paid up to buy Rickett Ben Keyser's food division, not because they're morons for heaven's sake, but because they understood precisely how valuable this business could be. They own the yellow mustard category. Of course, at these levels, McCormick's getting a little bit expensive. It's trading at 22 times next year's earnings estimates. And it's going to be up against some tougher comparisons as we anniversary of the recent uh, series of very strong quarters. But let me give you the bottom line here. McCormick has proven the bears wrong every step of the way. And after languishing for the better part of the year, I think this rally is just getting started as the stock has become the darling of the package foods group as well as it should be given the amazing acquisition that Mr. Kersey has made. Let's go to Glenn in New Jersey. Glenn. Hey, Jim. Fan of the show, and I appreciate your book, Get Rich Carefully. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, you bet. Hey, I've made some good money off Starbucks in the past, and the stock is about 20% below its previous 52-week high. And while they've had some disappointing earnings, some bad press, and Howard's left, the fundamentals seem pretty good with 5 million new digital registered customers over the last three months of big plants in Chicago. I'm wondering if it's time to buy Starbucks again. Well, I've got to tell you, if you can get it below 50, I think I would. I think the company's in there buying it with you. I think that a lot of the negatives are beginning to be recognized. It did catch a price uh, target shade today that made people feel like, wow, I shouldn't have paid up for it. But below 49, I got to tell you. Bye, bye, bye. All right, spice up your life with McCormick. The company's proven the bears wrong time and time again. I think the strength of the stock is just getting started. Watch more Mad Money ahead. After a big day for Bank of America, I'm sitting down with the CEO after earnings to crunch the numbers, and you better not miss my exclusive. Then I'm eyeing Enbridge. After today's drop in oil prices, see what's ahead for this pipeline company. I got to tell you, this thing's really attractive. And Boeing says the U.S.-China trade spat is a concern for the aerospace world. There might be a little more to the story that meets the eye. I'll explain. Stay with Kramer. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. 
Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Has this market finally decided to give the banks the credit they deserve? When J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo reported on Friday, it sure didn't seem that way. Even a strong quarter from J.P. Morgan was enough to get the, the group rolling. Yet when Bank of America reported a great number this morning, the group finally caught a bid. It marked a huge turn for the big money centers. Bank of America delivered a terrific six-cent earnings beat off a 57-cent basis with higher-than-expected revenue and robust loan growth, rising deposits, aggressive cost cuts, and superb digitization. Basically, Bank of America proved that they don't need high long-term interest rates to make a killing here. So could this mark the beginning of a longer-term rally in the financials? Let's check in with Brian Moynihan. He's the chairman and CEO of Bank of America. Get a better sense of the quarter and what his company's prospects are. Mr. Moynihan, welcome back to Money. Good to see you, Brian. Have a seat. Good to see you, Jim. Thanks. Bro. There are so many great lines in this quarter. Exceptional loan growth. The fact that you can return so much money. We're going to get to those. The $2.8 trillion deposit base. But I am struck by the digitization. You are well ahead of all the other banks. And tell us what that means for you and for shareholders. Well, if you think about what digitization means, it means better convenience for the customer and lower operating costs for us. And more assured transactions, more straight through processing that they used to call in the securities business, right. but think on a consumer business, uh, uh, customer interfaces, it, it enables the process to work better. And all that produces a good result for the customer. Our customer score, service scores continue to go up. Well, at the same time, the cost structure in the consumer bank especially continue to come down and got to 48% efficiency ratio this quarter. Now, how about uh, how many millions of people are using digital devices and how many are active mobile users? So you start from the high level. We're at 35 million plus digital users, which would be any device, okay. uh, computer screen, coming to bankamerica.com, et cetera. 25 million plus of those are mobile. In other words, they're going through right. an app. They logged in 1.4 billion times this past quarter. Uh, that's up 500 million times over the last year, probably. And so there are a lot of people using it, a lot of people using it. Those are active users. They've had to actually use the app in the last month actively to do something. Wow. So uh, give me a sense of what that means. How much are you able to save from just having plain old brick and mortar operations? It would seem that this is a considerable saving versus that. So you have to think, go back about 10 years when we started uh, seeing the impacts of this. So, th you know, uh, internet banking started in the mid-90s, right. dial-up servers. It was all took a long time to take off. Well, what happened was this, with the advent of the smartphone and the iPhone and things like that, you saw this thing take off. And so if you go back 10 years ago, we had 6,100 branches. Today we have about 4,400, 4,300. You had 100,000 teammates working in that business. Now you have 60. But importantly, you had 12,000 who were relationship managers. Now you have 25,000. So you've had this massive switch 
in terms of what we do in the branches and the customers. So it's high touch and high tech, and that is, requires both. Well, I would guess it, from someone from the business, I would say you have more revenue producers than you have people who don't make money for the bank. Well, it, I would say that that's true, but I think you have to remember that we're a service business. So right. you come right. in and need a power of attorney. That may not produce instantaneous revenue, but why are you asking for it probably has something to do with something that's going on in your life. So their relationship managers, are, they're enhancing that relationship rather than just taking a check over the transom, which right. there's not a lot of value-added uh, uh, view to that. The customer, just get it right, please. Whereas if you come in and I have a question about I need a mortgage, need a a car loan or a card loan or something like that. Or, more importantly, my mom's, my mother's sick. Hopefully she's not. But my, if my mother were sick, I need you know, some help to, for a power of attorney for her medical or move her accounts and things like that. That's the, what you want to go on in branches. Even on a service base, you want those really interesting, hard questions where people need real help. Now, uh, we on May Have Money care passionately about buybacks and dividends. It looks like the government has really greenlit you versus a year ago. It's a sign of your health. Right. And we've just been building that up. So if you go back over the years, we've been asking for more and more and more. So last year, in the first approval, we got $17 billion in total, eight, almost 18 in capital return. This year, we got 26. Last year, we also went back and got an extra five when we redeemed the, uh, with the Buffett warrants and he converted into common. Uh, and so that's been a great move for us. The $26 billion, you know, it's getting pretty close to the earnings level it's projected for us. Uh, and dividends will be moved from 12 cents to 15 cents a quarter or 60 cents a year, which gets us at $30 price, a $2 yield. It's a 2% yield. It's, it's all good. Now, a lot of people are fretting that perhaps loan growth is slowing down. Your loan growth figure indicates the opposite. Yeah, we, we point that out to people. We, you know, it's... I beg your pardon, we never promised you Rose Garden. We never promised 10% loan growth because the way we run the engine and the way we uh, uh, client select and the way we focus and prime consumer is such that we're growing. But if you looked in our materials today, you saw that year over year for the last four second quarters, we've grown basically 5 to 6% every year over right. the previous quarter. And it's just consistent grinding it out, good high quality loan growth that customers want and that we can get paid back. All right. Now, after the close today, Netflix reported disappointing quarter. What does that have to do with Bank of America? Well, you have Erica. And it looks like Erica's doing the opposite of what Netflix is doing tonight. That's been very strong growth in a very short period of time. Yeah, so you talk about that mobile application and, and 25 million customers' hands. So the question is, you have to type in it and you have to do all the things. What Erica does is an artificial intelligence, voice-activated or text-activated engine that changes your interface dramatically and starts to anticipate what you need. So, for example, if the other day I opened it up, I said I wanted to pay... Uh, someone a bill. I just said pay. Uh, in that case, it was a landscaper, you know, $422. It found the person. It said, do you want to pay $422? Yes, it's done. As opposed to typing in the name and finding and scrolling through and everything. It's just an easier way. And then after it learns more about me, it will start to plan my finances. It will tell me I'm spending more than I earn or whatever the case may be, or I'm spending a lot. If I want all the payments I've made for restaurants, it'll tell me at that time out of all my accounts what we've made by type. And it's, it's, so it's an artificial intelligence thing, but initially it really just works to help me be able to use the device much more to my uh, benefit. I mean, to me, when I hear this, I think, okay. Well, let's, it, let's just remember, it went from starting right. to 2 million users in about, we are 50,000 in April and we're 2 million today. Well, so it's but, just taken off. But those are, a lot of those people have to be millennials who otherwise would think that maybe I should just go and be on PayPal, not that PayPal isn't a partner. Well, PayPal is more on the, uh, payments side with Zelle and stuff. Right. But in terms of you know, our mobile capabilities and uh, you know, core mobile banking, 
go far beyond the millennials. Uh, I got asked the question on earnings call today, is this millennials? You say, well, well, there's 35 million digital users. There aren't enough millennials to do that. And so it spreads across all age cohorts, even guys as old as us, Jim. But, but the rally on the millennial side, the, the, the take-up of something like a Zelle or, a, right. or a Erica is going to be a little bit more people are used to you know, using their uh, different devices at home to talk to and have them activate stuff. That'll change over time. I no. use it because it's just easier for me because I got big fingers on a little phone. It's hard to type. Bank of America has a great call on what our country looks like right now. Uh, I got great confidence after listening to your call, thinking, you know what? Stop being gloomy. It looks like business is pretty good in this country. So we, we start, and you think about the U.S. economy, two-thirds driven by the consumer, 70%, whatever people say at this moment, and we get good insight in the consumer. So for the first six months a year, our consumer spending, which is checks written, cash out of the ATMs, cash over the tellers, bill payments, debit and credit cards, wires, ACH, Zelle payments, is up 9% over the first six months of last year. That was 6% the year before that and 3%. So we've gone 3, 6, 9. That's acceleration consumer spending. And I would posture, leave aside some completely out of uh, character risk out there, right. that if the U.S. consumer is spending at a 10% growth rate year over year, that is a good thing for America and the economy would be in good shape. Now, that is on about a trillion four of dollars spent. So it's not a small sample when you think about double that to almost three trillion dollars for the year and think about that size relative to the economy. That's just the consumer side. That, that's literally you or me sending money to our account. So you think about that growth rate, that bodes well. I heard from our team today that you know, our internal people, because of tax reform, because of deregulation, um, are probably you know, saying that they're going to, you know, the, the good team, uh, Bank of America Maryland, the research team is at 4% GDP growth for, this, for the second quarter. What? And they've moved it up a little bit. Three, for the whole year, 2.93%. But this quarter, they think it might have a four-handle in it. That it will be a big number when you think about it. That's for the second quarter. And you're seeing more people come along. So whether it's 3, 8, or 4, that's right. a big number. And a relatively solid retail sales revise up heavily today. You see that consumer spending? All that bodes well. So we feel good about the U.S. economy. Now, is the unknown of this out there as a known of that? There's always an unknown. Right. right now, the people are employed. They're making more money. Tax reform has benefited them. Tax reform has benefited companies. And you're seeing that flow through the economy. What a great story. Great story for our country. Great story for Bank of America. That's Brian Moynihan, Chairman CEO of Bank of America. The stock is too cheap. Stay with Kramer. Could the pipeline stocks finally be ready to get some lift, even as the price of oil is getting slammed here? Take Enbridge, the Canadian company that operates the longest, most sophisticated crude oil and liquids transportation system on Earth. They carry the vast majority of the crude that the United States imports from Canada. They also have a fantastic natural gas network, courtesy its acquisition of Spectra Energy. And they have a nice sideline in renewables with a portfolio of wind, solar, and geothermal power generation assets. When Donald Trump won the election in 2016, a lot, a lot of people figured that his pro-fossil fuel, pro-construction policies would be a huge boom for the pipeline industry, but it sure hasn't quite worked out that way. Earlier this year, we got a regulatory ruling that hurt the whole industry. Plus, these stocks are all high-yielding dividend names. Enbridge has a 5.8% yield, so they were getting punished because rates were rising. But in the last few weeks, Enbridge has finally caught some lift, thanks to a couple of different catalysts. In late June, they got some important approvals from the state of Minnesota for a new pipeline project. Then last week, we learned that Enbridge is selling its natural gas gathering division to Brookfield Infra for $4.3 billion in Canadian dollars. 
Put it all together, and the stock has now roared 22% from its lows in late April. So could this stock be ready to roar? Or do we need to be concerned that the recent rally could run out of steam now that the price of oil has come back down? Let's take a closer look with Al Monaco. He's the president and CEO of Enbridge. Find out more about how his company is doing and where it is headed. Mr. Monaco, welcome back to Mad Money. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having us back. Al, it's been uh, more than a year now since you closed the biggest deal you've ever done, Spectra. I want to get a sense on what it's done for your company and what it means for the future. Oh, for sure, Jim. Uh, well, if you roll back the tape a little bit here, we were pretty much a single purpose, although a very strong single purpose focus on the liquids pipelines business uh, out of Western Canada and into the U.S. We essentially transformed that picture into one that now includes what we think is the best natural gas franchise business in North America. Plus, we added another utility. So we've got a very large utility base, gas utility base now. Uh, in North America, one of the largest and, uh, and, and fastest growing, frankly. So we're set up really well uh, for the future. You've also made some dramatic changes. You've done your best, sell some non-core assets, get that debt picture better. But you've also simplified your structure, something that I'm really thrilled about. It makes it much easier to understand what Enbridge has, really what you're getting with Enbridge. Uh, these were necessary, right, both because of how much money you had to spend to get Spectra, but also because you had these MLPs that, frankly, can't get their cost of capital lower. Exactly right. Uh, as you know, Jim, very well, the MLPs have done a good job, I think, for us over the last number of years, but certainly over the last two to three, the cost of capital really hasn't been effective. On top of that, uh, we think having a simplified structure, one that hosts uh, one investable entity, which has great uh, infrastructure assets in it, is the best way to go. We get some financial benefits out of it. We retain more cash in the business. So overall, we think this is a great outcome for us. We're in the roll-up process now, and uh, hopefully that'll be done uh, in not too distant future. At what time these were such great, great pieces of paper? Individuals love them for the tax benefits. The oil companies love them. Natural gas companies love them for the drop-down benefits. Do you think they'll ever come back? You know, we can never say never. At least our outlook at the moment is for the foreseeable future. The best structure for, for us is to have one investable entity, as I said, uh, that has a lot of benefits to it as well. Uh, so who knows? Uh, we'll see what happens uh, for now. We think this is the best way to go, and uh, we'll see what happens in the future. Now, in your presentation earlier this year, you talked about further asset sales potential. You've been, you've been making them. I mean, you've been able to find uh, buyers for pretty much everything. Uh, you still got some more things you want to sell to make that balance sheet even better? Uh, well, great question, Jim. So if you just go back a little bit, at the end of last year, we rolled out our strategic plan, which basically said we want to focus our efforts on our three big franchises, which is essentially a pipeline and utility business model. So when you look at it from that perspective, uh, the, next, the next phase is let's look at our asset base and see what's core and non-core and what we can actually monetize for good value. So we had a look at that post-spectra uh, closing and we concluded that the GMP business, the gathering processing business, although a strong business, really didn't fit the business model that well. So it became a capital allocation decision. We looked at our hold value for the assets and we saw some good opportunity to try and uh, generate some excess value for us. And I think we've done that with these asset sales. We had a $3 billion target. We're now at $7.5 billion. Not only does that 
uh, on strategy per se, uh, it also generates some very good financial flexibility for us going forward. Seven and a half billion dollars in asset sales, even though we're a large company, is nothing to sneeze at, so that gives us great financial flexibility. Now, you've also been doing a lot uh, to, I'd say, to broaden the uh, possibilities for export for our country. I look at what you're doing. You are the most forward-looking company in trying to take advantage of what is a tremendous glut of natural gas. I listened to the president today talking to President Putin. I started realizing that one of the things that's happened with Europe is that they could have used our natural gas. Are you bullish about the prospects of exporting natural gas? And it looks like Enbridge has to do the heavy lifting. Well, that was one of the main reasons, uh, frankly, Jim, for pursuing the Spectra uh, deal. Uh, Very much a natural gas strategy focus for us. And you've hit the nail on the head again. Uh, we see huge opportunity for natural gas growth uh, in this country. Uh, very much a low-cost supplier, uh, technology-driven, uh, bringing costs down overall in the industry. And now the opportunity is how can we build infrastructure? And it's all got to be pointed, at least in our view in the future, Jim, in terms of gaining export markets, gaining global market share for what we have here in North America, which is a tremendous competitive advantage in energy. So it's all about pointing that infrastructure to capitalize on that advantage and gain export uh, market share uh, on a global energy basis. You've always had a great, open, uh, really fantastic website. Everyone can know what you're about. I would be remiss not to talk about these gigantic renewable projects you're doing. It seems like you've got the largest wind projects going on in the world right now. You know, it's, it's a part of the strategy, Jim, only because we think that all forms of energy are going to be needed. It doesn't take away from conventional sources of energy. Uh, that's been the core business. But we think there's good opportunities to build out offshore renewables in particular uh, going forward. And the best thing about them is they hit the middle of the fairway uh, in terms of our business value proposition and risk reward. They come with long-term contracts. And that fits very well for us, and it comes with growth. Well, I want to congratulate everything you've done for shareholders. And I love the simplification. It's such a good deal. Al Monaco, president and CEO of Enbridge, great to see you, sir. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having us. They just raised their dividend. This has got plenty of capacity to continue to raise their dividend. And it's a simple structure now. I like Enbridge. May have money's back after the break. It is time! It's time for the Light Room Pivot! Rock Ross, one of the series, and then the Light Round is over. Are you ready? Skate! That is over the Light Round Clipper. This morning we'll start with Vinay in Illinois. Vinay! Hey, Jim, big fan. Booyah! Booyah! What's up? I have a question on uh, on a company you've liked in the past. You've had the CEO on as well, but it's been a while. The company's Children's Place. Yes, and Jane Elfers is doing a great job. One quarter is not a stock make. I think you take advantage of it and buy it right here. It's too low. Let's go to John in Florida. John. Hey, hi, Jim. It's John Kay in Dunedin, Florida. Hey, John. How you been? Okay. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Jim. Same. Jim, uh, I own Dynavax, and I'd like to know what you think of it, DVAX. Sure. Now, we've opined on this multiple times. And I think the Dynavax, it is, you know, it's come down. I still like it. And I'm going to tell you, I think, John, that it is actually down here. Oh, my God, 3% today. 
Bye, bye, bye. Okay, let's go to Dustin in California. Dustin. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Yeah, um, Abiomed, A-B-M-D. Do you know years and years and years ago we had this company on, I always welcome back, and I just thought it was the greatest story. I love cardiovascular products. And there you go again. It is still a good buy. We're not done. Let's go to Matt in Illinois. Matt. Hi, Jim. Matt, what's up? Hey, I'm interning at this company this summer that I see doing a lot of awesome things, and I'm wondering what your opinion is on the stock going into the next earnings report. That is Zebra Technology. Oh, Anders Gustafsson has done such a fantastic job. We've liked it since 80. It's almost a double. I'd stick with it. Let's go to David in Idaho. David! Yes. Hey, Jim. How's it going? All right. How about you? Oh, that's treating me well. Hey, listen, uh, I got a quick question about ABX and basically gold and silver. Look, I I always think people should have some gold. I like the gold GLD or I like gold the bullion. It is really hard to own the stocks. Was it ABX? Barrick? Sell, sell, sell. All right, let's go to Jared in Texas. Jared. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. And what's up with Chesapeake? We're heading in earnings. Want to get hey, some guidance? Don't want to go, to, Jared. Don't want to go to that one. I say, sell, sell, sell. I don't. I'm not a big fan of the natural gas market. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the lightning round. The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. There are a ton of very smart people in this business. But every now and then, you'll see a kind of a herd mentality in Wall Street that is utterly impervious to reason. Consider the otherworldly contrast between the Farnborough Air Show, which is going on right now in the U.K., and the endless fretting about China potentially canceling its orders for American-made aircraft. The entire aerospace industry is frantically trying to meet the demand for planes as more and more people in developing countries join the global middle class and begin to travel by air. Boeing and Airbus are in a dogfight over these orders. But at the same time, they're desperately struggling to meet demand because they're both overwhelmed with business. Yet we keep hearing about how China could wreck Boeing's earnings if this trade war keeps escalating. Here's what I understand. If China's such an important piece of the puzzle, if China's the linchpin for aerospace, then what's the deal with this Farnborough air show? Do those orders not count? Is it really about hidden orders to the Chinese? Don't get me wrong. I know China's an important market for Boeing. Look, it accounts for 13% of Boeing's sales. It's up from 7% back in 2011. But at this air show, We keep seeing that the demand for airplanes far exceeds the supply, which is why I keep telling you that China needs Boeing more than Boeing needs China. The world only has two major manufacturers of large commercial aircraft. The wait for these planes is as long as 20 years for some models. Like every other country, China wants to be at the head of the queue. They don't want to walk away from it. Oh, and just so we're real clear here, if China switches all of its orders to Airbus, they won't get anywhere near the number of planes they need. Maybe that's why Boeing stock gained more than $5 today. Look, we know that a potential lack of Chinese uh, plane orders has cast a pall on so many aerospace stocks, but it's a potential lack. It's not a lack. China fears to put a lid on Honeywell and United Technologies. Honeywell's got so much intellectual property and aircraft that it's become a China stock. United Technologies will have even more aerospace exposure when the company closes on its Rockwell Collins acquisition. What else? I believe all this uh, chatter now about Arconic, biggest winner in the S&P 500 today, being a possible leverage buyout candidate comes down to aerospace because Arconic's business is heavily dependent on aircraft components. That's what they make most of. 
Even General Electric has been hurt by the belief that China will cancel orders with Boeing. But again, Boeing does get a lot of business from China. I don't want to be glib. We know that Boeing and Caterpillar are the two stocks that get hit every time trade tensions flare up with the Chinese. But I'm betting that eventually people will realize that China's going to have to order aircraft from someone. Their own aerospace industry is still nascent. And there's only two someones in the space, Boeing and Airbus. If they want to switch from Boeing to Airbus, it could add years to their wait time. This is very much a beggars can't be choosers situation. You know what? The real worry here isn't China. It's all that weakness in the American airlines and the amount of overcapacity here in the U.S. The fares aren't holding up. The revenue per seat model is not going higher. The dogfights among carriers are back. The only way to cure all this is to have fewer planes being bought to take out capacity. That's something we're keeping an eye on. Against that, even with the price of oil pulling back to the high 60s, crude is still a lot more expensive than a year ago, which means if the airlines want to keep their costs down and the costs are killing them, then they need more fuel-efficient planes. And those are the ones that are being developed right now. I'll be talking to Larry Kudlow, the president's chief economic advisor, later this week at CBC's Delivering Alpha Conference. It's a fair question, I think, about how the U.S. can get the Chinese to buy more plant and equipment from us. Chinese orders to Boeing are certainly a way to do it. But if China doesn't buy those planes, someone else will. Stick with Kramer. Can a disappointing Netflix take the whole market down? I don't know. It can certainly take Fang down for a day. But let's not forget, Netflix was up more than 100%. And that's an awful lot going into a session to be able to withstand anything. Like I said, there's always a market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Made Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.